Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Back on September 22nd, I spent the entire day at the Eau Claire Grassroots Festival with keynotes and presentations by a rich, rich group of activists and thinkers, and among them was John Peck. John is staff for a group called the Family Farm Defenders, which supports sustainable agriculture, farm worker rights, animal welfare, consumer safety, fair trade, and food sovereignty. We'll try to learn a fair bit about them in the course of Spirit in Action today, but I am so very intrigued by the wide-ranging scholarship, creativity, and insights of John Peck. With a BA in economics and PhD in land resources, teaching at Madison College in economics and environmental studies, running his own farm, and writing poetry, John has so much to share, and we'll be especially delving into his take on economics in general and our economy in particular. We'll join John Peck by phone now in his office, and also the office of a couple other folks sharing the room at Madison College in Madison, Wisconsin. John, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. It was good to run into you when you were up here in Eau Claire. Do you go to the grassroots festivals everywhere, or is this a special case that you came up to Eau Claire? Well, I've been going to the ones in Mesomania at the Wisconsin Heights High School since the beginning. I mean, this year's one of the first years where they're trying to do a series around the state, so... Eau Claire and Wausau. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I've been to Eau Claire for other events, so it's always nice to get to Eau Claire. Yeah, I met you not because you were a presenter, but because we were in a couple of the breakout sessions together. Why did you choose the breakout sessions that you chose? Well, there are topics I was just curious to see. They're usually things I'm thinking about myself, and I have presented on some of those topics at other events, so I was just curious how other people's take on the issues, and also curious what, like, what the conversation's like, you know, who's there, and you know, possibilities to meet people, so that's, for me, it's a pleasure to go to an event where I'm not having to do anything particular, like I wasn't on any panel, I wasn't a speaker, I was just a participant, so that's always nice. Before we got on the air, you mentioned, John, that you have a PhD in everything. Now, <laughs> I don't think you mean all topics, but all these areas that you teach at at Madison College. Give us a little bit idea of your background, because it's pretty extensive, and your work and the facets of your personality are rich. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the values of being more holistic person. You can get more out of life. So, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to have had lots of travel experiences, educational opportunities, both in and outside the classroom. So, it, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a very small farm, central Minnesota, but my parents both were graduates of Berkeley and University of Massachusetts Amherst. So they obviously had an academic background and my dad is actually a professor at the college in St. Cloud State in Minnesota. My mom does wildlife rehab. She has a master's degree in wildlife management. So I definitely grew up with, you know, surrounded by books. The military was after everyone at my school, so my brother was in the Air Force. 
So like when my graduating class, only a handful of us even thought about going to college, and I was one of those. So I went off to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which serves a reputation of being quite the hippie college. Yeah, I actually got a, pretty much a full-ride scholarship there because they were amazed that some rural farm kid from nowhere in Minnesota would be applying to Reed College. <laughs> so that was, that was, they were all excited for geographical distribution, all sorts of other reasons. I remember my dad sending them a picture of our outhouse because you know, we grew up without running water or, you know, we didn't have a toilet and shower in the house. So when they saw that, they're going, whoa, this is like Appalachia, but in the Midwest. And, of course, we were living that way by choice. It wasn't because we were in that abject poverty, but, you know, we were trying to live light on the land and so on. So going to Reed was a real eye-opening experience for me because for the first time I was really exposed to, like, you know, people from East Coast and West Coast, very well-to-do, liberal parent backgrounds. And that experience was sort of replicated at Columbia University when, when I went there for my master's work later after Reed. Probably the most, one of the most formative things for me at Reed, besides being exposed to sort of activism in an urban setting, was getting a Watson Fellowship. They give you basically a huge chunk of to just travel around the world for a year. So I did that, looking at biosphere reserves and indigenous knowledge systems related to tropical rainforests. And so I was able to travel to places like Madagascar and Papua New Guinea, and, you know, places I've only dreamed of ever going to on someone, else, someone else's dime. And that was really a, an amazing experience to do that for a year, to basically traveling. And along the way, you got a few degrees. I mean, your bachelor's, your BA was in economics. And- yeah, I did my economics at Reed. And, you know, part of my idea behind that is I saw pretty quickly that economics was, well, I thought it was a huge part of the problem of why the world was the way it was. And then I discovered, well, actually, that's sort of one version of this discipline. There's actually better version. I thought, well, maybe if I could get a job at the World Bank or something like that, I could maybe change the system from within. I always, you know grandiose plans of what I could do with a economics degree or something and you know that's part of the reason I went to Columbia University for my master's work in international development as so sort of along the same tracks so then you know at that point I already had a part-time consulting gig with the World Bank at one point in Zimbabwe and I started realizing ooh this institution's beyond reform I mean this is so corrupted there's like no way I could move this dinosaur anywhere. What do you mean by corrupted? Oh, just the whole thinking process, the model of economics, you know, just the assumptions they're using. You know, I was taking classes taught by a World Bank economist, basically at Columbia University, who are arguing that sweatshops were good, they're a necessary stage of development, you know, that poor people are just sort of poor because they lack virtue, I mean, there's all these assumptions in conventional neoclassical economics that are really dehumanizing. And, you know, the earth is just a resource. Everything should be privatized. You know, those are the types of things I was being taught and then seeing, you know, put into practice through World Bank policies. And so, you know, I was, in, I was at the World Bank protest. You know, I went to the WTO protest in Seattle <laughs> in mm-hmm. 1999. You know, I just, I just finished my time at Columbia, you know, and I was looking at, at this point, I was at UW-Madison, still in ag- as an agricultural economics at that point, looking for a PhD, and I'm going, boy, this is not, I need to really rethink my trajectory because this is not, not going to help the world or even my own psyche or my own soul. So then that's at some point, you know, after being in the Ag Econ program at UW-Madison for a while, I just realized, no, this is not, you know, I remember, I'll never forget taking a class where literally we're studying farmers that were just computer models on the screen. Yeah. 
and you basically had to, you, you were told at some point, you know, you know, you need to make this farm profitable, you must spray on schedule, you know, <laughs> you must spray for potato beetles now, and you have to hit the button, spray, 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 I'm going, no, I don't want to spray, but there's like no alternative, you had to spray, <laughs> or you would lose the game, and, and all the farmers were just equations, I'm going, well, I know real people, they, they don't act like this, so, so that's when I switched to environmental studies, got out of the Ag Econ program, switched to environmental studies, land resources, and there were some more sympathetic souls in that part of the campus, and I started meeting more students and faculty that were questioning the status quo and were trying to make the world a better place. You know, that's what led me to discover Family Farm Defenders. I remember you know, as a grad student walking across campus and seeing this farmer picketing. This older farmer, John Kinsman was his name, old dairy farmer from Laval, Wisconsin, picketing outside Memorial Union, telling the students that the ice cream they were enjoying was made with this unregulated, unapproved bovine growth hormone because they were doing the experiments at the university at this time. That was before the FDA rubber-stamped its approval. So they're basically selling this experimental genetically engineered and dairy products on campus to students without their knowledge, faculty, staff, patients at the hospital. Everyone was basically part of, you know, guinea pigs in this experiment, and he was out there trying to warn people, and of course he's being heckled by the Badger Dairy Club, and everybody thought, you know, all technology is wonderful, you know, DDT is good for me crowd, you know. And I said, whoa, this I need to meet this guy, and that, that was my first introduction to Family Farm Defenders because they had formed this group, and they're trying to hold the college accountable for their research. They're trying to combat this trend towards industrialization and agriculture. And, you know, I'd seen this all growing up in my farm community in Minnesota. I could see the transition happening, and the whole Wendell Berry unsettling of America was happening before my eyes as a child growing up. And, you know, to see people actually working to change it, to stop this and provide an alternative, you know, was really refreshing and sort of a morale booster for me as a grad student who was sort of deep in the belly of the institutional beast at this point. So I, I like got involved in the organization as an activist, student activist, and we did stuff on campus and you know, started trying to break down the ivory tower syndrome a lot of colleges are in and you know, get the community on campus, vice versa, and you know, get academic you know, grad students out to visit actual farms doing grass based rotational grazing, which the university wasn't even studying at that time but was already happening on its own. You know, that was my introduction to Family Farm Defenders, and I was really involved. And, you know, once I got my Ph.D., I was going, well, I mean, I could teach, but maybe my heart would be happier if I actually did something to help, you know, save family farming and promote sustainable agriculture. And so that's when um, Family Farm Defenders actually came in to enough grant money to hire a part-time staff person. And, and I was able to, you know, when that position opened up, I mean, there were some other people before me, but when that became available, I jumped at the opportunity, and that's what I've been doing for the last almost two decades now, working with them part-time and doing other things, too. But that's, you know, I farm as well on my own part-time. I teach part-time, but I'm doing things I enjoy doing. Well, it's an amazing variety of things we have to talk about. I want to flesh in a lot about the Family Farm Defenders. The place where I met you was a breakout session at the Eau Claire Grassroots Network Festival that was held here in Eau Claire a few weeks ago. The breakout session was on economics. I could see that you could have gotten up and, and taught and led. What did you get out of that session or what could you have brought to it that would have enriched it? Well, I mean, it was, it's always good to see where the different ways people enter a conversation like that. So, I mean, I, you know, the way I teach economics is sort of, you know, I try not to be pedantic about it because I've had that experience as a student 
I remember at Columbia University sitting in a giant lecture hall of 500 people with Bhagdish Jagwadi was his name. He's a big World Bank economist teaching this class on development economics. You know, it'd be 500 people, and he's like pretty much laying down the gospel, like from a Bible or something. And he would, you know, perfunctorily ask you know, any questions. And of course, I'd be, you know, <laughs> invariably the only one, the only one out of 500 who would dare to raise their hand. And after at some point, he had to call on me because I was the only one. You know, and then I'd, I'd actually ask him, so, you know, things like, well, so you think patenting of life is okay? You know, because these are the types of topics that are coming up. You know, like, oh, patents are great, you know, and, you know, sweatshops are a wonderful development strategy, you know, just things like this. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe, you know, this is right in our textbook. So, I mean, having been in that, you know, looking out at my, you know, I don't have 500 students in a lecture hall. Thankfully, I have, like, 35. But, you know, like, thinking about, okay, how is this person perceiving what we're talking about? Is this even resonating with them? So I try to make what I do more participatory and not, not assume that people are on the same page at all. And, you know, part of my challenge, well, part of the mandate of the college, actually, of most liberal arts institutions is, like, to teach critical thinking skills. So I think our textbook has a very set agenda. I mean, it's really obvious. And, you know, I didn't choose the textbook. I sort of have to follow what my colleagues are teaching, and they're full-time faculty, and I'm just part-timer, so I sort of have to go along with the program. But I sort of teach against the textbook. I try to encourage my students to question what the book is saying. Like, is this a valid assumption or not? Because there's all sorts of assumptions in economics. It's a social science for Buddha's sake. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not physics. It's not, no, not talking about gravity <laughs> here, you know, whether or not people, people may not see resources in the same way. If there are even resources, their goal may not be to maximize their own happiness as a self-interested individual, though that's the assumption of economics. So, so I try to get people to sort of get back to some more of the core ideas of what economics is about. And, you know, I've taught a sort of a mini version of how I teach that the college as a free school class in town here. So just, you know, we have a Madison free school. It's like people just propose workshops and anyone can come. And it's usually a series and it's free. And, you know, I've done, you know, economics for the rest of us type free school classes. And, you know, that's what I, you know, part of it's trying to give people the tools and the ideas to help them sort of counter the propaganda they get from talking heads on TV or all these pundits who work at places like the World Bank or the Federal Reserve or whatever. And Because, I mean, a lot of that's just a bunch of, well, like I described in my class, my econ class the other day, it's sort of like, you know, you get to the land of Oz and there's this wonderful wizard and then you realize there's that, like there's this little man behind a curtain <laughs> doing these levers. <laughs> it's really not what you thought it was. And that's like, you know, it's just all smoke and mirrors. I mean, it's not, you know, the appearance is not what it really is. So that, that's part of the challenge in economics, I think, is sort of the myth-busting and trying to, you know, everyone uses economics every day. You know, it's just like how, how do we demystify it and empower people using those ideas rather than, you know, make them just another cog in the machine, which is what a lot of us are reduced to when we take, you know, a conventional economics class or even see an article about it. It's just like, well, you know, you have no agency, you have no say about this. It's just the way it is, you know, take it or leave it. Does the scientific method apply to economics and economics research? I mean, I don't think it applies to poetry, for instance, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that's what, I mean, it's a social science. So, I mean, you're trying to extrapolate. I mean, that's what a hypothesis is. We're going to try to make an educated guess. The trick is, like, we're not making an educated guess about how molecules behave in a vacuum or something. We're making an educated guess about how people might behave, which is not so fast and firm, you know. So, like, you know, just to give an example we talked about in my class yesterday, 
the assumption in economics is that if the price goes up, people want less. People want the cheapest thing possible. And that might be true some of the time, but it's not true all the time. And there's a whole bunch of things we need. Status. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what we talk about. There's like Veblen goods, they're called, named after Thorstein Veblen, who's one of the great economists at UW-Madison, Norwegian immigrant. He wrote a whole book called The Theory of the Leisure Class in 1899. He's basically studied rich people. Why do rich people buy and consume the things they do? And his book was, is totally relevant for today because it's all about status symbols. You know, and now we call in economics, we call those Veblen goods, Veblen goods and services. So these are things which people want because they're exclusive, high status. You can think of examples, you know, Lamborghini sports cars or caviar or whatever, you know, Gucci. Versace. Yeah, yes, yeah, all that type of stuff. And the idea is like you don't want anybody else to be wearing this or consuming this. You want to be the only one. So you want the price to be high. And if the price is even higher, money's not a problem for you. So you actually want prices to be higher. So you have this sort of competitive consumption for status. And so demand actually goes up when the price is higher. That's an example of where this theory that, oh, people are, don't like high prices, they want everything cheap, is not always true. <laughs> so, but that's like the whole sort of what's actually behind the curtain problem in economics. And to be honest, when I was taking economics at UW-Mass in graduate level, we did not talk about those problems, quote, problems, where the theory breaks down economics until you get to very high-level, graduate-level courses. They, at that point, they figure, well, you guys are so committed to this discipline, now we can really tell you what's going on or not going on. <laughs> and so that was really refreshing to finally get to that level, and, like, you'd have these professors saying, well, you know, this is totally bogus, this theory is totally bogus, like the whole idea of maximizing utility. That's just totally impossible. There's no way. No one has perfect information. It's impossible. No one can ever know if they're truly 100% happy. Totally impossible. So we're always satisficing. And then we'll talk about this economist, Herbert Simon, back in 1956, proposed a satisficing theory where people just have to at some point make a choice, and they're not going to be the happiest they could ever be. They're just going to be, you know, only 80% happy, not 100% happy, because they don't even know what that would be. So everyone's going to be, there's opportunity cost. Every time you make a choice, there's a better choice that you didn't make, but at some point you just run out of time, energy, whatever, and you have to make a choice, and you hope it's the best choice you can make at that time. He had proposed this whole theory, but that, like, upset the apple cart. I mean, all the other, other economists were really upset with him. Like, no, the whole goal in economics is to maximize happiness. You want the most possible. And he's going, well, that's just not possible. It's not real. It's not realistic. You know, this is like a fantasy land you live in, and people were really upset with this theory, and they sort of, like, tried to deep-six it and hide it away in the graduate-level seminars. But, I mean, that's the reality. Like, we're never going to be 100% happy whatever that means, trying to even put a price on happiness. Good luck with that. That's what economics tries to do. Is that the postulate behind most economics? Is that, you know, that they're going to maximize happiness, their own satisfaction? Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. even know what happiness is for sure. Yeah, but... they call it utility. That's a fancy economics term for happiness is utility. And the idea is, well, you want to be, you prefer pleasure to pain. I mean, this goes back to Jonathan Bentham theories, you know, the philosophy of the 16th, 17th century. Like, people are adverse to pain. They like pleasure. So they're going to be wanting to be happy. And that's where the utility theory comes from, that people want to be as happy as they can be. And so then the magical thing in economics then is, like, we're going to turn happiness into a value that we can measure. And that's called positivist valuation. That's a fancy phrase for it. But we can actually get a yardstick and measure people's happiness 
then we can compare whether people are happier or not happier, and what is that measurement that's going to end up being a price, a value. Is the problem with that the complexity of measuring happiness? Because Oh, sure, I mean, yeah. There's people, you know, pleasure, pain. There's people who are sadomasochistic, too. Oh, sure, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, and that's like the Veblen good thing. Like, so are these people actually happier consuming more, or are they just, you know, addicted to, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of behavior that's not necessarily constructive, and then the idea, like, you have to put a value on everything, you know, what's what's your grandmother worth? I mean, this is the type of thing I have, and I, I do a little economic survey for my class at the beginning, like, where are people at? Like, what's Lake Superior worth? What's your grandmother worth? You know, and people have to, like, figure that out, and I go, well, do you think someone actually has a number for that? I mean, they did after 9-11. All those insurance companies knew what the value of everybody who died in that building was, and people got paid different amounts of compensation based upon what their future potential earnings were. It's like the family of the janitor got a lot less money than the family of the executive who died in the same building. So we have different values for human beings in our supposed economy. You know, I would argue that's totally crazy, but that's what our economy is doing now. You know, what's your liver worth? You know, <laughs> what's your DNA <laughs> worth? I mean, we have markets for this stuff, right? Oh, wow. And then, of course, the challenge becomes, well, there's certain things we don't have markets for. Well, that's, you know, part of economics, and that's where cost-benefit analysis comes in, right? You'd go out there and try to put a price tag on everything. Well, we're going to get into more detail about that in a moment. First, I want to remind folks you're listening to Spirit in Action. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, 13 years of our programs for free listening and download. Place comments on our website. There's a donate button. This is full-time work supported only by listeners, not by government, not by corporations. It's by you, the listener. So please do donate when you come. But mainly what I want to make sure you do is support your community radio stations. Uh, my guest today, John Peck, I listened to interviews with him on KKFI and WORT, two great community radio stations. Please support your community radio stations. It's so valuable to have an extra voice that is not in the main line. And as you know, John Peck is talking about the alternatives for how we conceive of things. And economics, environmentalism are two areas that he's particularly concerned in. But we're going to get into very shortly his work with the Family Farm Defenders. I want to start, though, I went out to check him out before I decided to interview him on uh, Rate My Professor. And here's a comment. He has a five-point rating on on there, which is excellent. One of his comments was, I've taken John for environmental issues and microeconomics. He has got to be one of my top three professors in all my MATC career. Lots of extra credit, super fun lectures, makes all content very easy to understand, engaging. He is inspiring and awakens interest in students. Just go to class and take notes. Grading and assignments are very doable. And that's the kind of person I want to have as my guest for Spirit in Action because I want inspiring people and already listening to you. I mean, when I met you in the breakout session, John, that's what inspired me to want to have you as my guest. I wanted to say a few more things about economics. You've talked about the alternative, the World Bank view of how economics is supposed to be rated. And I thought that perhaps you had a good suggestion for us in terms of uh, what a better view of economics might be. Uh, one of the things in particular that uh, is so overrated, and uh, there's a lot of critique from from many directions, the GDP as a rating of economic well-being for the country, stock market as well. And right. uh, yeah. why don't you toss in your views of what alternative economic ground we can stand on more firmly? Yeah, that's a good point about the GDP is sort of like a proxy for 
value or what, what we're doing. And, of course, the GDP doesn't care what we consume or what we're producing. So that's part of the problem. In fact, one of my econ students last semester told me this joke about two economists walking down the street. And one economist saw a pile of dog doo-doo and dared the other economist to eat it. And I'll give you $5,000 if you eat that. And the guy said, sure. So he ate it and gave him $5,000. And then they continue down the street, and another pile of dog doo-doo appears, and the economist who just ate some dared the other guy, I double dare you to eat that, I'll give you $5,000 if you eat it, and the guy does, and they swap. So they basically give the money back to each other. And then one economist goes, well, now we're just back where we started. We both just ate a bunch of dog doo-doo. And the guy says, no, no, we've increased the GDP by $10,000. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this, this is, that's the, that, but that's the problem with the GDP measurement. It doesn't matter what it is. So... You know, and if the goal in, in economics is to, you know, have people be happy, there's a lot better ways of measuring happiness in the world. So, like, the United Nations has these happiness indexes where they, you know, basically look at a whole bunch of different variables. You know, it could be, you know, not just standard of living type criteria, but, you know, quality of life criteria. And then, you know, actually ask people, are you happy or not happy? And believe it or not, you know, some of the happiest countries in the world are not the so-called wealthiest in terms of GDP measurement countries. It ends up being other countries. It could be places like Denmark or places like Bhutan or, you know, places that, you know, a lot of us don't even necessarily think of as being economic success stories. But, you know, in terms of the happiness of their people, they are really happy on average, much happier than say, people in the U.S. So there are alternative ways of thinking about how the economy works. And one of the ones I really encourage people to think about is, like, the assumptions that we're all competing all the time. Like, we have unlimited wants. Resources are scarce. It's sort of a dog-eat-dog version of the world. And that's why conventional economics says we all must be competing. Compete, compete, compete. Fight, fight, fight for what's scarce, what's out there. And there's a totally different view of the world, right, which is sort of where the institutionalist school of economics comes from. But the idea of, like, maybe... What would be better for the economy is if we cooperated rather than competing. So the idea of collective action and cooperation is a better way to run an economy than people just competing against each other and being selfish and greedy. And then actually the economy might be better that way. You know, more people are happy, more can get done. We're not always worried about someone, you know, backstabbing us or breaking a contract or whatever. We don't have all this legal apparatus to deal with people not following the rules. I mean, people are on the same page, people are working together. And there's been lots of studies showing that that's by far a much better way to run an economy is, you know, cooperative action, people share values and move together forward. And that's how the Menominee, for instance, managed their forest. You know, it's the best managed forest in Wisconsin. And it's not because it's private property or state property. It's because it's managed by the tribe under the seventh generation principle as a public trust for posterity. And that's a totally, and they cooperate to do it. And that's a very different, and you can physically see the, you know, just pull up any satellite images of forests in Wisconsin, and you will see that's by far the healthiest forest in the state is Menominee Forest. And it's because of how they manage it. And they manage it in a very different model. So very different from Weyerhaeuser or, you know, even the state, <laughs> chopping down trees left and right. And does it work out well in other ways too? Is it nurture the tribe? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, you can think of other, you know, it's not just what do we want to get from a forest, you know, it's not just timber. I mean, there's other values there, right? There's clean water, there's wildlife, oxygen. So, I mean, you think of other things, too. Like, if you're exchanging goods and services, which is what economics is all about, like, we need goods and services, we need to work together to provide them and exchange them with each other. Are you doing that as a one-off transaction, where you don't even care about the other person on the other end of the exchange? Or is it like a relationship? If you actually believe in relationship economics, which I do, 
it's important. You, know, you actually, not only do you trust the other person you're trading with, like they're not selling me some shoddy thing or they're not trying to kill me, or, but you also have empathy, like you actually care about them. And that's what the whole idea of like collective action cooperation is about. If you actually want to have a thriving economy into the future, then you are going to care about how your neighbors do. You know, are your neighbors doing well or not? You are going to care about the earth, for instance. You are going to see, you know, other species as part of a bigger family, a bigger community. I mean, it's sort of the land ethic how the Leopold talks about. And, you know, every culture in the world has, I would argue, similar perceptions of nature and things around us. You know, what, you know, the role of water or soil in our economy. You know, is it just a resource to use or is it something to respect? Is it, you know, part of, is it a gift, you know, that we're sharing together? that needs to be replenished and nourished over time and stewarded, you know, and that, that's a very different approach. It's not just me, 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 what can I get out of it today approach. You know, it's, it's a much more, I would argue, healthier and more sustainable and, and as an economist, I argue actually more productive and efficient way of sharing the world with each other than the dog-eat-dog competition. You know, I really want to get to the family farm defenders, but there are a couple more principles about economics that I would like to explore with you. And just be aware, folks, as you're listening to this, that there are going to be some bonus excerpts from this program. There are parts that we won't be able to fit into the broadcast. So if you're listening to the broadcast, remember to go to org and listen to the bonus excerpts on my interview with John Peck of Family Farm Defenders. The website, by the way, for Family Farm Defenders, there's a couple options. You can Type in familyfarmers.org. Used to be, have to always be, I think, familyfarmdefenders.org. And that still is what their masthead says, but familyfarmers.org will get you there. So a couple economics principles. You mentioned some of them indirectly. One of them I experienced while I was in Togo, lived in African Peace Corps, my village, and I went to buy a banana from a woman vendor, and she said that'll be, you know, 10 CFA. I said, well, how much would it be for two? And she said, 25 CFA. Yes, right. <laughs> I said, no, you can't do that. But she was adamant that's on the way. And I said, okay, well, I'd like to buy one banana. And so she sold it to me. He says, okay. And then I said, okay, now I want to buy one banana. And so I bought a second one, and it was 20 CFA then total, right? Mm, so yep. we have this principle that we think it's, it's almost an article of faith in this country that when you buy more, you should get each for less. Right, uh-huh. And that encourages concentration of money, power, economics. But it's a guiding assumption that we have. Is that questioned in any form of economics? Yeah, it's an interesting example. So, I mean, obviously she was trying to make sure that people who didn't have enough money at least got one banana by having lower prices. She had some sense of fairness based on quantity, which is interesting. I mean, we've, we have that situation when there's, like, a shortage. I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago when there was, like, a rice. There's some, like, rice shortage happening or something. And, like, Costco and other stores literally limited how much you could buy. You can only get 10 pounds. And the idea was, like, to make sure everybody got that who needed it. And you couldn't just be a speculator and move in and, and gobble it all up and then sit on it and wait. And, and that's been true throughout history. I mean, you think about even Charlemagne when he was setting up the end of the Roman Empire in Europe. I mean, he was the one who started came up with the idea of, of what's a fair price. I mean, actually, that comes from Thomas Aquinas, but he, he implemented it within his empire because there was all these problems. With like, And you could watch, you know, read Robin Hood. I mean, this is the type of problem, right? You go to the marketplace, you're a peasant, you're dealing with a merchant who has a lot more power than you, 
and they basically are dictating to you a price, and you sort of have to take it or leave it, and he probably has a thug next to him. <laughs> so, like, you're not going <laughs> to try to negotiate with this thug. And then, you know, what was happening, of course, then you have your bushel basket, and the merchant says, well, pour your oats in there, and I'll pay you for the bushel basket. And then he, like, punched a hole in the bottom of the basket, right? So you kept pouring oats in there, and the oats are going out the bottom. And that's the type of stuff which Charlemagne cracked down on. You know, Thomas Aquinas was saying, no, you cannot just rip people off in the marketplace. It needs to be a fair price. You know, what is fair? Well, that's going to be something each community is going to decide, right? That's going to be, a socially, that's going to be socially constructed. So, like, we have that notion even today, right? Well, a lot of us would say, well, the minimum wage is not a fair price anymore. Maybe back when it was first created in 1933, I think it was, 1934, having a minimum wage of 25 cents an hour was a huge deal because, I mean, the prevailing wage then was only 10 cents an hour. So, like, overnight, people's wages more than doubled. But having a minimum wage of 7.25 today for a lot of people is not a fair price for their labor. It should be more like 15. I mean, actually, economists have figured it out. If we actually had a minimum wage that kept track with inflation, it should be up to 17, 18 dollars an hour. What it really should be to have the same buying power. But all of us have sort of internalized. I would argue from way back, from growing up, even as children, like you know, a sense of fairness. Like what's fair. So, I mean, obviously, that's a great example you had from Togo. And I've been in markets like that in, in other countries where, I mean, the prices are fluid, right? It's not like set. It's not like Walmart where you go in and you can't haggle or negotiate. Like, I, I mean, I've been in markets where it's like there's a person who's obviously hungry and really, I mean, even in, in Madison, I've seen this happen. Like if they're, I mean, I, I have no problems with the market giving uh, someone who's obviously in dire straits and hungry some food. If I have some leftover food and my chickens are full, I'm not going to be able to sell it by the end of the day because it's, you know, here, have one, you know, on me. So as a vendor at the farm. Yeah, as a vendor, as a vendor. And I've seen people literally do this too. I've had consumers do that too, where they literally come up and buy two and give one to somebody who's been hanging around the booth hoping to get one, but doesn't, can't find enough money or whatever. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like pass it on type thing. I've done this even at toll booths. Like I'll, I'll literally pay for the person behind me just for the fun of it, sort of. <laughs> Why not? And just watch their reaction. They come up and they're trying to like pay and the person weighs them through and there's like a conversation well that guy just gifted you a, a toll you know you can see him having this conversation in your rear view mirror you know as you're driving away it's sort of like interesting and the world will be different because someone did yeah that. well exactly i mean imagine if i fell down and i need help and i had to tell somebody ten dollars for anyone who helps me i've seen a cartoon like this like someone's fallen down help help everyone's walking by and they finally shouts ten dollars for anyone who helps me and finally someone stoops down and gives them a hand up i mean but that's the world would not function that way. If everything required us to pay each other, our human civilization would fall apart. I mean, there's no way an economy functions that way. I mean, most of the economy is stuff being done that no one's paid for. Right now, there's a family. You know, kids are getting ready for school. Someone's packing a lunch. You know, someone's washing dishes. Someone, you know, is picking up trash on the sidewalk because they don't want someone slipping on it or cutting their foot on the broken glass. And they're not getting paid for any of that. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's how, you know, our world works, helping each other out, cooperating. You know, the bulk of the economy is that type of work. So then when we have someone like saying, oh, well, you know, Wall Street made all this money this week, I'm going, doing what? You know, what value was that? I mean, I think I mentioned in the workshop or one of the workshops, they're like, like for every $1 in the real economy, and I'm talking the real economy, like us, us actually doing things for each other that makes a difference, like providing food, shelter, education. You know, we have like $50 in this virtual speculative fake economy, I'd argue, which is like all this futures markets and derivatives and all this, which is actually adding no value 
to the economy. And interest. Yes, right. Interest rates, all that, all that. It's, it's like adding no real value to the economy. It's just like, you know, this giant, you know, we're in the Great Lakes, so a giant lamprey <laughs> starts feasting off, off this trout that's trying to, you know, the trout is what's really important. And then we have this giant parasitic apparatus leached onto the economy and just siphoning off all these resources and then all these people whose lives, you know, this and insurance companies, I mean, I can just go on and on. I mean, there's a whole parts of the economy that are thrive due to dysfunction, due to problems, which wouldn't normally be there. It's like pollution. You know, the goal in the economy should not be to trade pollution. Pollution should not be a commodity. We've turned it into a commodity. I can go down to Chicago and buy and sell carbon dioxide, the right to pollute, CO2, and dump it into the atmosphere. The real goal should be reducing and eliminating pollution, period. And we should not be churning out these toxins. And yet now we've turned them into a, another economic commodity that we can buy and sell. You know, isn't that wonderful? Is it kind of like taxing cigarettes and alcohol, which becomes such a big income source for yes, the government right. that all of a sudden you have this incentive to make sure that they don't go away? You still want cigarettes? And- yes, sure. Yeah, well, imagine if we didn't, if we suddenly peace broke out, we didn't need a military. I mean, some people would be all upset about that. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job making landmines. I, for one, did not feel sorry for all the slave catchers that went, were unemployed once we abolished slavery. I do not feel sorry for them. They should have. That was a, a p- horrible activity to be involved in. It should not have been allowed, period. And those people should be transitioned into something else that's useful. But, that, you know, like we were talking before, the, the economy doesn't care what you're producing. I mean, landmines are just as valuable, according to GDP, you know, figures as, you know, actually producing potatoes. I mean, it doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. Or building houses or anything. Or blowing or blowing houses up. I mean Yeah. Well, you know, if we're gonna talk at all about the family farm defenders, we better transition now. And I want to take into account one portion of the economic theory we've been talking about. More is better, uh, that if you that if you get bigger you get efficiencies of scale. That's how people usually think of it. And I think that many people think of the family farm as being less desirable because it's not as big enough to get those efficiencies. Right. So uh, tell me why we want to defend family farms. All right. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of like bigger is better is definitely a food policy that the U S has been pushing for quite a while. And we've seen that most recently with all this latest stuff about the dairy industry, for instance, we know this week, the world dairy expo is opening in Madison, right? It's all about getting big or get out. They want to sell you giant equipment. They want to sell you, I mean, I've seen the largest manure vehicles ever at the World Dairy Expo. I mean, these things are... Oh, wait, are you talking about Washington, D.C.? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's some of that there, too. But, I mean, these are these are huge vehicles for carting around manure. And it's sort of the whole, like, you know, I had to swallow the spider to catch the fly problem. Why is manure a problem? Because your scale, I mean, as, you know, when I was growing up, my neighbor literally would say, if manure is a problem for your farm, you've gotten too big for your britches. That's how he described it. Like, if you have so many animals and nowhere to put all this manure, you have to put in a giant lagoon, and now you're worried about the lagoon leaking and you have to, like, drive it 100 miles to spray it on fields, and you're worried about methane exploding, and your wonderful technology of scale created all these problems you didn't have before when your cows were outside walking around eating grass, depositing cow pies, which are breaking down aerobically, so they're not releasing all the methane, 
which they do in a giant lagoon where there's no oxygen. So you like, and now the nutrients are going right back into the pasture and the plants are thriving and you're even really good at rotational grazing. You have mobile chicken coops following your cows. So they break up the cow patties and eat the bugs and the whole system's integrated, much more efficient than like, oh, we're going to put 5,000 cows in a barn on 10 acres. We have to buy all the inputs. We have millions of gallons of manure to deal with later. And the goal is to produce the cheapest milk possible, volume, volume, volume. When actually anybody in economics know it's price times quantity is total revenue. So if you want to compete with lowest value milk possible, yeah, you can crank out a lot of quantity, a lot of Q, but your price is going to be so low that maybe the guy next door has only 60 cows and is selling his milk for twice as much, actually might be making more money than you. The whole idea behind a family farm is you're trying to have an integrated business model. It's not just a factory. The whole idea of factory farm came out of economics. I mean, the first person to use the term factory farm was Alfred Marshall in an 1890 economics textbook. It's like a footnote. He talks about, we're going to take the industrial methods from factories and apply them to agriculture. We're going to turn farms into factories. And we're going to have everyone be specialized, you know, just like the assembly line, you know, that, you know, Henry Ford is going to use for cars later. We're going, to, we're going to apply these specialization, mass production, all these techniques to the farm. You know, and everyone's going to be a machine. We're going to have farm workers. The labor is not going to just be the farm family anymore. We have to hire all these people, and we're going to treat the animals like machines to maximize production. I mean, that's the whole idea of the factory farm sort of industrial model. So, I mean, if you actually want that, which, I mean, I would argue probably one of the most successful, or successful in scare quotes, Versions of this was actually Stalin, Russia, where they'd forced, you know, all these small peasant family farms and these giant collective farms, which basically run like giant state factory farms. And you literally people, their only job all day was driving a tractor. They were called, you know, tractoristas or something. Now you go to one of these giant factory dairy farms and you have people, their only job is milking cows. That's all they do. Or their only job is hauling manure. That's all they do. And so it's no longer integrated, right? You know, the family may not even, it may not be a family farm anymore because who's making decisions? It might be a manager with an outside investors. You know, maybe it's under contract, so actually you don't have any choice anymore. It's all dictated by Walmart. I mean, Walmart's setting up their own factory farms now. They decide everything. You're just like a contractor for Walmart. And let's contrast that with the official mission described on the familyfarmer.org site. On that site, it says, Our mission is to create a farmer-controlled and consumer-oriented food and fiber system based on democratically controlled institutions that empower farmers to speak for and respect themselves in their quest for social and economic justice. To this end, Family Farm Defenders supports sustainable agriculture, farmer worker rights, animal welfare, consumer safety, fair trade, and food sovereignty. Yes, right. So all of those are aspects of it. I was looking through your board members, and it looks to me like over the history of your organization, four of your board members have been from Wisconsin, one from California, one from D.C., one from South Dakota, two from Minnesota, one New York, one Florida, one Kentucky, and one Illinois. So Wisconsin is heavily influenced there. Is that because of you? Well, it was, it was started by Wisconsin Farmers. So, yeah, I mean, I guess our origins are in the Midwest. There are, other, you know, other groups that sort of preceded it, but the big impetus, I think, was it was mostly started by dairy farmers who were very concerned about the introduction of bovine growth hormone into the industry, and they're also very concerned about the dairy checkoff. So I don't know how many listeners might be familiar with the idea, but, you know, farmers basically, they have a taxation without representation where they're basically forced to pay into these government programs to promote certain commodities, and it comes right out of their milk check in the case of the dairy checkoff. There's similar checkoffs for pork and other things. 
So people are just concerned about, you know, this money is basically being garnished off of their paycheck and goes into the pockets of the dairy industry. And one thing is really important that people realize that with this whole debate, for instance, about trade right now, like our own governor is saying, oh, this is a great victory that Canada is going to be forced to import dairy products from the U.S. This is a great victory for Wisconsin farmers. You know, my first response is actually farmers don't export. Corporate agribusinesses export. So the farmers could still be victimized, even with massive exports. The whole idea of globalization and commodification, you know, reduces. Well, farmers are just, they have very little power by themselves. That's why a lot of farmers try to form co-ops, because then at least they have some leverage power with these giant processors. But if you only have two or three giant corporate agribusinesses controlling the entire dairy industry, I mean, we just have a handful of them. I mean, they pretty much run the show. So we have like people at UW-Madison, and I, the uh, head of the UW Center for Dairy Profitability was quoted in the state journal, I think, two or three weeks ago, basically saying, we may have to sacrifice family farmers to save the dairy industry. And that's sort of paraphrasing what he said. But you can see what that means. I mean, that's basically, we're going to throw farmers under the bus because our model of producing food doesn't depend on them anymore pretty much. If we, and I, I've literally had people argue this, other ag economists, you know, I've argued this, like, well, John, if we could produce all the food in five giant farms, and it's the cheapest food possible, that's the way to do it, why wouldn't we want to do that? And I'm going, well, because it's not actually the best way to do it, and there's all sorts of other reasons to have lots of small family farms <laughs> besides, you know, producing really cheap food. I mean, that's, I mean, the food might be toxic. I mean, there's all sorts of other problems with producing cheap food on giant factory farms. But what's going to happen to the rural landscape? What's going to happen to the communities? Are people going to be happier? I mean, look at our license plate. It has, like, cows outside eating grass in a little red barn, and that's not the future you're talking about. No one is going to want to drive into the countryside to see a factory farm. That community is going to be eviscerated. There'll be nobody living there. The churches will fold. All the schools will close. I mean, you just have a vast wasteland of manure lagoons, toxic dumps, exploited farm workers, you know, and all the money being siphoned off to some corporate headquarters, you know, in New York or wherever they're based, Chicago. That's not a vibrant, healthy, rural economy. That's not good karma food if you really want to get down to it. I mean, that's, I mean, you talk to these factory farm people, a lot of them don't drink the milk they produce because they know what's in it. They know how many chemicals they're using. They know how many antibiotics they shot into those cows. You know, most of the family farms, I mean, I grew up drinking the milk for my neighbors. Everybody felt confident and happy drinking their own milk because they knew it was good. Even my dad, growing up in apple orchards, they always, used to always joke about how bad the red delicious apples were. And he said, well, those are for the city people because they want a perfect apple, but I'll never eat one of those. Because we spray so many chemicals on those, they taste horrible anyways compared to this apple over here. <laughs> they had like 30, 40 kinds of apples. But they had the, the big city people wanted the unblemished, horrible-tasting red delicious, you know. And he, <laughs> so that's, you know, part of it, too, is like how do you change consumer attitudes about food and farming? I mean, I mean the fact that we import 90, 90%, 95% of the food we eat in Wisconsin from out of state should be a problem. We're in the middle of this wonderful agricultural landscape, Right. But most of it, the corn and soybeans we're growing, we can't eat. I mean, it's like genetically engineered for ethanol or feeding to cows in confinement. You know, we're bringing vegetables from California. What happened to our food economy? We need to relocalize. You know, and every time we're buying that food, from that money's leaving. You, know, you shop at Walmart, that money goes down to Arkansas. You know, goodbye, there it goes. You're like actually, you're mining your resources, you're destroying your topsoil, you're siphoning off all the wealth. I mean, we have some of the worst hunger in Wisconsin is in rural parts of the state. Where the agriculture is happening. Yeah, where agriculture is happening. So people are literally growing corn and soybeans, which they cannot eat. 
and they have to have a second job working somewhere. So, like, the family garden has been abandoned. I mean, I've driven by, I don't know how many farms, where I see, like, a one patch of rhubarb left, but this family's not even growing food for themselves anymore. They're, like, part of this machine. You know, they're just producing commodities for a market, and they can't even feed themselves. I mean, that's, like, the saddest. And then they show up at the food bank, and they're buying processed food or getting processed food, you know, to replace healthy food they used to be able to grow for themselves. You know, there's no food sovereignty happening there. That's the antithesis of food sovereignty. They've lost democratic control over their food supply. Obviously, you and I think differently about these things than the vast amount of people, and I, I think they're brainwashed, actually, by it. But, I mean, there's a reason I built on a root cellar to my house, and there's a reason last month I've been canning applesauce and salsa and wild plum jam and my wild rice acorn burgers, the recipe I invented for them. There's a reason I'm doing all those things, even though it would be cheaper for me to buy applesauce than to do what I do with applesauce. But I know my applesauce is good because it came off of my neighbor's trees, those apples did. I just had to pick them and can them. Right, and it will taste better, and you'll be able to tell that story when people enjoy it, and they'll appreciate it more. Yeah. And the other thing I've been doing, which is part of my whole idea of economy, is I've been distributing jars of it to the other neighbors on this road. They're coming from my neighbor's tree. She lets me pick them. She's just going to let them fall and deer eat them. So I can it, and I give a certain portion to my neighbors to let them know that our neighbor gifted us. Right, and then that's part of the whole reciprocity, mutual aid, solidarity economy, which is you know, how a lot of the world still functions. And it does reemerge here when we have a crisis. You know, people often will start to help their neighbors and others when they need help. But you know, why can't we do that every day? You know, that that should be part of our everyday activity. You know, I see my neighbors struggling shoveling their sidewalk. I'll go out there and help them. Why not be helpful? You know, growing up, if, you know, the rain is coming and I see my our neighbors are trying to get their hay in, we'll all get on our bikes and ride over there. And we used to do this and help out, you know, get it all in. Or if our cows get out, which used to happen, you know, the neighbors would round them up and bring them over. And it's not like, you know, everyone just spend for yourself and devil take the hindmost. I mean, that's not how a healthy economy works. So is there an alternative economic indicator that you, as a teacher of economics and with a degree in it, would point to that would fairly measure the importance of family farms versus the factory farm? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, there's so many values in agri... I mean, we call it agriculture versus agribusiness. So, I mean, you know, the culture part is really important. How do you measure the value of a thriving culture? You know, a community that's healthy, how do you measure that? I mean, there's lots of proxies for that. We can talk about things like, you know, suicide rates or drug abuse or... Pollution. Yeah, pollution. I mean, there's all those types of things you can try to put into one giant, you know, equation, I guess. I don't know. To, to, you know, a lot of it's just looking at people's satisfaction. I mean, they've done these surveys. I mean, people have 10 times more meaningful conversations at a farmer's market versus a grocery store. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing the same type of thing, right? They're getting food, presumably, but people just enjoy a farmer's market experience so much more because there's, like, relationships going on there. There's, like, community, whereas at the grocery store, people are just fighting with each other with their shopping carts, trying to get out of there as fast as they can because it's horrible and the lights are too bright and it's just feeding frenzy commercial atmosphere. So if you talk to people's satisfaction level, like, how happy were you about which experience the other, it would be pretty obvious. So... Yeah, that's the type of how do you get at that, you know, it's, it's, that's a good question. You just look at, like, what are the most thriving communities in Wisconsin right now, and I would argue a lot of them are where there's a lot of sustainable agriculture happening. There's a lot of very well-run co-ops. 
people have decided to provide municipal broadband access to the internet. <laughs> I can think of these communities, right? Like Viroqua is an example. Robert Wolf wrote a whole book, which I did a review of in our last newsletter. So, I mean, like, how do you, if you're going to try to relocalize your economy, part of it is like, and he's had this idea of like sort of the rural city or something. But I mean, it's part of the idea is like you can have, you can have a very nice life, all sorts of amenities being not in a giant city. I mean, you can do that in a smaller community now, especially. You can have a top-notch healthcare system. You can have internet access in a place like Viroqua. You don't have to be in New York City to access. You can have, you know, good cultural experiences. You have quality schools. In fact, I would argue some of the higher quality schools are in rural areas, you know, not necessarily in big cities. But all that comes on, you know, how do you maintain value your economy has to be strong. You know, part of that's like the multiplier effect. I mean, if you invest in your community, like you're buying food at the farmer's market, you're getting things you need from a locally owned hardware store, you're actually going out to eat at a locally owned restaurant, not a big chain version, fast food restaurant chain. That money is going to be more likely to stay in your community. And there's been studies done on this over and over again in the Midwest where, you know, communities that focus on relocalizing their economy, they're going to be healthier in the long run because all that interactions and that exchange is going to be more likely to stay there. It's not going to be extracted, siphoned off. This is what Ken Meter studies at the Crossroads Center in, in Minneapolis. He does these studies of, you know, like the most classic one he did was one called Finding Food in Farm Country. And he literally did this study. He like focused on some counties in southeastern Minnesota. He just looked at them. Like, they're all growing food. They're all agricultural counties. But the, what are they growing? They're growing these commodity crops for export, basically. They're getting money back. And then they have to buy food to eat coming in from outside. They end up falling behind. It ends up being a drain on their economy over time. And then they have to get subsidies from the government to make up the difference. So the taxpayers have to help float them to keep them alive. He's showing that that's not a viable economy in the long run. I mean, it makes a lot of money for corporate agribusiness, but they're not there. You know, they're just sort of like the uh, invasion, the war of the worlds, right? And the Martians are invading. They're sort of sucking up everything and they move on. You know, that's sort of how corporate agribusiness works, right? They could care less about your community. They're just there to make money. And once you're, you know, dried out, they'll leave. You know, they'll abandon you and move on. So how do you relocalize your economies? And, and part of that bill is about rebuilding your community, having you know strong, vibrant relationships with people that go beyond just you know here's some money, thank you, bye. You know. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, John. Folks, we have been speaking with John Peck. He is staff for Family Farm Defenders website, familyfarmers.org. But that's not all he is. He teaches at Madison College in economics, environmental studies. He's got much more. If we'd had time, I would talk to him about the closing of Mifflin Street Food Co-op in Madison. Uh-huh. I would also have talked about his domestic partnership that he chose in 2014, why that is. And I would have had him share some of his poetry as well so there's <laughs> there's a lot more that i would have had him share but i do want to encourage you to go to the site familyfarmers.org and learn out more and become a member please support local food and your local community radio station and the local economy there's much more to learn about it john i really wish i could have you for longer but i know you've got to go off to class and i've got places to head to too so thank you so much for joining me for spirit in action Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. 
And remember, folks, there are bonus excerpts from this interview on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. Go there and listen to more tidbits that we couldn't fit in the broadcast, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 